Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that looks at the history behind today's headlines. I'm Brian Bella. I'm Nathan Connolly. And I'm Joanne Freeman. Each week, my co-hosts and I, all historians, explore a topic that's been in the news. And today, our topic is going to be the history of protests. We're going to begin in Sacramento, California, 50 years ago. The exact date, actually, is May 2nd, 1967. That morning, 30 black men and women walked up the steps of the State House carrying loaded guns. Those men and women were members of the Black Panther Party, and they were protesting a gun control bill under consideration by the state legislature. And they walked right in the front door. There was no security that they had to pass, uh, and walked right into the legislative chamber while it was in session with their loaded guns. This is Adam Winkler, a professor of constitutional law at UCLA. The Panthers weren't there to commit violence or to take hostages. They were there as part of a political protest, and they wanted to make it clear that they had a Second Amendment right to bear arms and that they needed that right. After the Panthers were turned away from the assembly chamber where the bill was being debated, they gathered on the lawn outside. One of the group's leaders, Bobby Seale, read a prepared statement warning black people to, quote, arm themselves before it's too late. The Panthers were making a novel and some would argue timely argument that the Panthers had the right to bear arms as a basic civil right, that it was as essential as the right to vote, the right to own property. And they believed that in order to protect their constitutional rights, they had to be able to, frankly, police the police. In Oakland, Bobby Seale and Huey Newton began a practice of policing the police, where they'd send out armed police patrols to follow police cars as they patrolled. And when the police officers would pull over an African-American, the Panthers would stand, they'd pull over too, and they'd stand off to the side with their guns pointed straight up in the air or straight down at the ground, which under California law was lawful at the time, considered a non-threatening possession of the firearms. And they would shout out advice to the person being hassled and also just sort of keep a careful eye. A police officer was a lot less likely to beat up an African-American when he's surrounded by other African-Americans who have loaded guns on them. Uh, And this, as you can imagine, the Black Panther's policy of policing the police didn't make the Oakland police very happy. And so they pushed one of their allies in the California state legislature, a guy named Don Mulford, uh, to push for new gun control laws, laws that would take guns out of the hands of the Black Panthers. Which brings us back to that 1967 protest at the California State House. It was that gun control bill, Don Mulford's bill, that was under consideration when Bobby Seale and his companions carried their guns into the state capitol. When that bill passed, it banned the public carrying of loaded firearms. The Panthers policing the police was outlawed. The very next year, President Lyndon Johnson signed a National Gun Control Act that outlawed the sale of guns by mail. It prohibited felons and people deemed mentally unstable from buying guns. And it was argued that the act was part of a number of different pieces of legislation brought on by the assassination of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy. But, you know, the law sparked a lot of pushback. The gun lobby argued that it deprived law-abiding citizens access to guns for self-defense. And before long, middle-class whites began claiming that gun ownership was a constitutional right. It helped propel the modern gun rights movement, in fact. Today, the backbone of that movement is mostly white and conservative, a far cry from the Black Panthers. 
That's the funny thing about protest. It can start small and local and then move through American society in all kinds of unexpected ways. I mean, we, we've actually seen Americans stage all kinds of protests just in the past several years. I mean, just think about it. We've had the Occupy Wall Street movement, the Tea Party movement, protests against the Iraq War. And yet all of this seems to pale in comparison with what we're seeing just in the last few months, right? I mean, we've seen record numbers of Americans protesting Trump in the Women's March. We've seen the protests against the Dakota Access Pipeline. We've seen town hall meetings across America. I mean, this has been an amazing groundswell of activism. So today on the show, we're revisiting some memorable moments from backstory segments on protests. We'll explore the media's role in the 1963 March on Washington, and we're also going to look at one of the more unusual uprisings in American history, a protest by the wives of Confederate soldiers. But first... Let's travel back to the 1770s and 1780s. In the first decades of the New Republic, Americans were basically protesting all the time. And some of those protests were peaceful, but some of them were most definitely not peaceful. A few years ago, we did a show on the history of populism in America. Backstory host Peter Onuf talked to historian Paul Gillia about how early Americans rioted over pretty much everything. Gillia began by describing a protest over a seemingly innocuous issue in 1774 Massachusetts smallpox vaccinations. We all think of smallpox vaccination as being a major medical innovation and that this is occurring in the 18th century. The problem was is that vaccination in these days was to get a small case of the smallpox. You know, you, you essentially cut your skin and you put a little pustule in it and you get a mild case. Well, then you become contagious. And so what you have in right on the eve of the Revolutionary War, you have people throwing rocks and, and demonstrating against the richer people who could afford an inoculation for fear that people who get inoculated would have carried the disease and spread the disease. That's a great point. So there is a, a class dimension to this, Paul. Yes. And they felt that the government should step in and prevent this sort of inoculation. And instead of the government, the crowd stepped in. Where politics fails according to the people that get angry and they demand action. Right. Essentially, the magistrates, who would be the local officials in the community like Marblehead, uh, were not preventing these people from getting vaccinated. So the people got frustrated with the magistrates, who, by the way, were rich people, right, who might be getting vaccinated themselves. So what do you do? You know, you don't want to catch smallpox. And so the people rushed, you know, and rushed to the street, demonstrated, tear down a couple of outbuildings on these, of these connected to these rich, rich people, they did things that they thought were going to protect them from infection. Paul, it's a fascinating example of those smallpox riots. But mobs uh, were rioting throughout this period, culminating in the revolution. Uh, but rioting didn't stop just because Americans won their independence, no. did it? No, rioting continues. And if you were to ask me, and I say this with a wince on my face. What is my favorite all-time riot, right? Yeah, no, and I say you it's don't condone them. I understand that. <laughs> rioting is a, is a violent, can often be a violent activity. And of course, the riot I'm thinking about, or the series of riots I'm thinking about, are the Baltimore riots of 1812. And the Baltimore mm. riots of 1812 began where there was a newspaper which was publishing articles against the entry of the United States into the War of 1812. And the people of Baltimore felt that this violated 
the community's interest. And so they go to this office and they tear the building down. Hey, how about free speech, Paul? Yeah. <laughs> free speech. <laughs> Freedom of the press. Well, this, that's the point, isn't it? The community felt yeah. there shouldn't be free speech if right, you're opposing okay. this war, which, you know, uh, eventually a small group of militia intrude themselves and they take these people who had published this newspaper and mm -hmm. they put them in jail for safekeeping. And then the next night, the mob attacks the jail. And the mayor who supports the war steps in front of the mob and he says to the mob, you know, guys, you can't do this. You can't break into the, to the jail. And somebody turns to him and says, Mayor Johnson, I know you very well, sort of identifying this kind of political, personal connection. He says, mm -hmm. there are times when the laws of the land must sleep and the laws of nature and reason prevail. And then the crowd bursts into the jail and there is no reason. They tear these guys apart. They beat these people to a pulp. They, they take pen knives and stick it into their cheeks. And they take hot candle grease and drip it into their eyes. And, and one guy who was being held in the jail, who had been a Revolutionary War general, says, gentlemen, gentlemen, stop, stop. You can't do this. And they just beat him to a pulp and he's killed. Wow. What I'm trying to suggest is that the Baltimore riots represent a transition from an 18th century form of rioting to a 19th century form of rioting in which riots become mm -hmm. increasingly violent. That was University of Oklahoma historian Paul Gillia in a 2015 interview with Backstory host Peter Onuf. I think that, as, as Paul Gillia suggests, um, over time, rioting becomes, and, and just mob violence, becomes more violent. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's a whole literature. There's a lot of historians who've written about the fact that there's kind of a ritualistic element to early, early American protests. So, you know, like pre-revolutionary protests that people would expect a bunch of people to go into the street and be angry about something and then do something very targeted. You right. know, like, well, we're mad at a press, so we shall go and hurt the press. Mm -hmm. And then parade around a little bit and, you know, maybe burn an effigy and then go home. What strikes me about both of the protests that Gilia talked about is that they quite literally involve life and death matters. In the case of smallpox, these people understood that they could die from this disease. In the case of 1812, you're talking about being willing to sacrifice one's life to go right. to war in what became known as the War of 1812. And I have to feel that the matter being protested has something to do with the degree of violence unleashed. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. And I, and I think... Um, an example of that would be one of the more famous acts of protest during the Revolutionary Period, which is the what we now call the Boston Tea Party, mm. which was a protest against attacks on tea. And a group of people in Boston decided that they would go onto these ships where tea was waiting to be unloaded into the harbor and that they would destroy this tea and make a statement about the fact that they were not going to pay this tax. So they were making – I mean it was a strong statement and, and they were, you know, essentially – It was strong tea. <laughs> Oh. Well, it became kind of weak tea <laughs> in the in the water in the ocean. It was wimpy tea, but but the point is that was a really targeted, controlled act of protest, so that 
people went on board. They really didn't want to damage the ships. They really didn't want to do any harm to anything. You know, they su- supposedly they swept the decks of the ships when oh they were done, God. so they didn't leave a mess behind, right? And I think they they were worried about hurting the locks, the padlocks to the hatches, where the it's a strong statement and it's a dangerous right. act. But they just want to register protests. They actually don't want to do damage. But and it's not Brian, a life and it's not a life and death exactly, matter. Exactly. Ultimately, it's it's an economic matter, which is important. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So there's risk involved, and I guess I don't want to suggest that early protests are quaint and that somehow they then become violent. Um, just I think clean. it's actually. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but anyway, I guess I I do think. The, the larger point here seems to me that, yes, I do think rioting and violence uh, of this sort becomes more violent. But in saying that, I don't want to suggest that the earlier violence uh, is quaint. I think another example of that, um, and this will be a true confession from an early American historian, you know, you read forever about the practice of tarring and feathering. Mm, but sure. when you actually get down to the nitty-gritty details of what that is, it's brutal. It's mm. nasty. It's hot t- tar being poured onto people and then feathers being put on top. But that hot tar often takes skin with it. You know, sure. I mean, it, it it's a nasty, horrible, burning, disfiguring thing. So, again, as much as you could say, well, that's very ritualistic, you know, tarring and feathering, um, it's brutal too. It's pretty violent. So I, I guess, yeah, very violent. So there's like a spectrum maybe. And as Brian suggested, maybe it really is pegged in part to the nature of what's being protested and the groupness of it. So we're going to have to take a quick break. But when we get back, we're going to talk about how Southern women waged their own war during the Civil War. And I bet you, dollars to donuts, they did not clean up after themselves. (laughs) Okay, Brian, I want you to do something for me. I want you to close your eyes. Both of them? Both eyes. All right, the second one just shut. (laughs) Thank you very much. Okay, now I want you to think of somebody who you really care about. All right. And now I want you to tell them something very personal right here on the air. I want you to tell them a podcast that you just know they would absolutely love. Oh, that's such a setup, Joanne. Backstory, of course. (laughs) Of course. Of course. But I also love a few more. I love Amicus. I love Slate's Political Gab Fest. Uh, I confess, I love Serial, and I love This American Life. There are so many good shows out there. I mean, that's just a great example. And that's why all this month, we're going to be asking you to tell a friend about Backstory or any other podcast that you love, because we all know people who just don't get podcasts or how to find one that they like or even just how to find them at all. I have trouble finding a friend. (laughs) Oh, Brian. (laughs) I'm your friend. Thank you, Joanne. And it's it's easy when you have friends. You could tell them about your favorite podcast in person, or you could tell us about what you'd recommend to them by going on social media and using the hashtag tripod, T-R-Y-P-O-D. Thanks for spreading the word. I'm typing as you speak, Joanne. <laughs> Good. So now let's go to the spring of 1863. You have white women across the Confederacy taking to the streets, but they're not protesting against the Civil War. They're not protesting against slavery. They just don't have enough to eat. Last summer, our co-host Ed Ayers explored this unexpected protest for a show we did on women in politics. We'll let Ed do his thing from here. 
Here's what happened. By the second winter of the Civil War, white women throughout the Confederacy could not feed their families because most able-bodied white males were in the Confederate Army. There's not even teenage sons left on these farms. This is historian Stephanie McCurry. She says that at first, these soldiers' wives wrote letters to state and local officials begging for help. McCurry discovered hundreds of these letters, and here's one written by a North Carolina woman in 1863. We have seen the time when we could call our little children and our husbands to our tables and have a plenty, and now we have become beggars and starvers and no way to help ourselves. And then she said that she and the other soldiers' wives could not do enough field work to get subsistence from the land. Sometimes in the same letter, it would start out like as a begging letter, and then it would turn angry in the middle. We will have bread or blood. And they meant it. In March and April of 1863, mobs of white women broke into stores and government warehouses across the Confederacy to steal food in what were known as bread riots. There were more than a dozen of these uprisings from Mobile, Alabama and Salisbury, North Carolina, up to Petersburg, Virginia. The biggest riot took place in the capital of the Confederacy, in Richmond, Virginia, on April 2, 1863. Around 9 o'clock in the morning, a clerk in the government office John Jones, who left this amazing diary, describes being pulled to his window by the sound of these women, about 300 women, with another crowd of men and boys behind them. And he said, totaling about a thousand people, they converge on particular merchants and they demand, they sort of interview the merchants. They say, how much is bacon a pound? And the guy says, you know, well, it's $1.20 a pound. And they say, how can women in our position pay $1.20 a pound for bacon? You need to give it to us at government prices. And he says no. And then they break down the door. And they begin this basically four-hour riot in the warehouse district or the wharf district of Richmond. And they threw men off of wagons in the street to commandeer <laughs> the wagons to haul yeah. off the loot. They took, seized a huge amount of stuff. They'd well, seized, and if people um, may know that Richmond's the capital of the Confederacy, you would have thought they would have had some soldiers there or something. Why did they let this rage for four hours? Why didn't they try to, to nip this in the bud? Uh, they did eventually put this thing down by force. They called out troops to put down this riot, and then a lot of them were arrested. Confederate officials were puzzled by how well organized these riots seem. The leading Richmond newspaper offered the standard explanation. Men did it, or even Yankee conspirators had put these women up to it. But in Richmond, the trial records provided some clues to the contrary. When they get into court, they find out that this is not the work of men or Yankee operatives. It's the work of a, a one woman, Mary Jackson, a huckster and meat at the city market. And the night before... The riot, she called a meeting of 300 town and country women, some of them from as far as 11 miles away, people she had recruited. And they had a meeting in the Belvedere Baptist Church. She got up into the pulpit. So you know how acceptable that was. And she kind of rallied her troops and she told these women that they were going to organize themselves. They were going to behave peaceably. They were going to explain their reasons, but that they were to come tomorrow and they were to leave their children at home that is to say, we're going to have a riot, you'll need a babysitter, <laughs> and come armed. More than 70 Richmond rioters were put on trial. Many were fined or sent to prison, although Mary Jackson, the ringleader, was not. 
Despite the clampdown in Richmond, the riots had a positive outcome for women. They forced officials throughout the Confederacy to pay attention to the needs of civilians, not just soldiers. First of all, they they started to return food from the army to the worst hit counties. So they gave back food that they had seized by the tax and kind. They created food relief programs. The the welfare policy in the Confederacy expanded enormously. And um, they allowed county relief officials to buy corn at government prices, which is what the women had wanted in the first place. So I think that if people were imagining places in the United States where women were likely to be depoliticized. It might have been in the Confederacy, you know, Southern ladyhood and all that sort of stuff. And yet we have here one of the most visible and in some ways effective rebellions of women in 19th century America coming out of the South. You think it's mainly a condition that they were put in such conditions that they had no choice? Did did this have a Southern accent in any way? Absolutely. Um, This is desperation. But, you know, people can just lie down and die in moments of desperation. And these women got up and fought back. And um, they fought back and sort of forced officials to answer to them, like, you took our men, you promised to protect us, now you better act. So the fact that these women who have no legs to stand on, no ground on which they can think of themselves as citizens of the nation with rights that are being violated, None of that is within their grasp. And yet still, when the government forces them into this really intimate relationship with them, it starts to take their husbands and their sons and their food. People respond. Yeah, what that suggests is that this grassroots rebellion had very direct results in what people do think of as politics and the the public policy of the state. So that's, I mean, it's hard to imagine they could have gotten those results in any other way rather than uh, threatening to burn things down. So it's just so fascinating, I think, and so moving in a human sense to recognize that when we go into the archives and dig around, we find these unexpected things. Exactly. And one of them is that no matter how many times we're told and the history we read is really men do this and men do that. I mean, really, it's quite outrageous. You get to the 21st century and you can still basically write a history of the world without any women in it. It infuriates me. There is lots of evidence of how women made history. And I think this is a great example of that. It's like a rip in history. And that's I think why historians write so much about wars, because wars create conditions of rapid change. They also leave records. That was Columbia University historian Stephanie McCurry, interviewed by our own Ed Ayers. So so the thing that jumps out to me right off the bat from Professor McCurry's remarks is this notion of having intimate relationships with the government, right? This idea that the government and you have a kind of bond. And if that bond is violated, then violence can be the result. Uh, You know, we're talking about a female protest, right? And part of the power of that is the fact that they're women. And I believe that uh, Professor McCurry in the interview talks about, in a way, this is making a new politics. It's it's people who have been excluded who mm-hmm. are now asserting, in a way, that they are part of the system. But when I listened to that piece, what it made me think of was um, a complaint that uh, Thomas Jefferson made about France right. and about women in France during their revolutionary moment. And what upset him was he said that women at that moment 
they weren't part of the official system. And so they were able to go between the lines and behind the scenes and get to people in power and assert demands and make claims in a way that no one could put their finger on. Now, in this case, this is in a sense the opposite. These people are, are, are putting themselves in the middle of the public sphere and launching a protest. But I wonder the degree to which the fact that they were women, how that shaped the perception of what was going on. So yeah, this 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 notion that there are legitimate expectations that as a citizen, as a woman, as a you know child, that one can expect the kind of care that one can expect, um, you know, I think is is really powerful, and I think it, it goes a long way to explaining the nature of protests, regardless of what period you're talking about, right? If 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 you believe you struck some kind of social contract with the government and that was effectively violated, you know, it can lead to some pretty um, explosive consequences. You know, the one thing that... Revolutionary. That, that, <laughs> revolutionary, exactly. No, it's true. It's true. I mean, I'm always amazed, for instance, when you think about these kind of, you know, riots or rebellions, um, you know, there's always a kind of, again, intimate quality. There's almost a surgical quality to them. Like the women in Richmond, they know exactly where, where to strike when the bread is not provided, right? You think about cities that were, you know, burning during the 1960s or even race riots during the 1920s. The merchants who were charging you too much money for that secondhand TV, that store had to burn, right? In, in a place like Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921, if there was a black employer with a white employee, that employee during the race riot there would go to the black boss and try to burn his business down, right, as an expression of a relationship that had simply gone awry. And so it's a powerful example of these things that seem really impersonal, right? These riots, these explosions that at the street level and at the personal level are profoundly intimate. And it's a reminder that although on the one hand, protests can and probably are meant to often have a broad sweeping impact, that they're also meant to and do have a local and a personal impact as well that's part of their power. I think that's right. We're going to take a short break. When we get back, how media coverage can help or hurt protests. A word from today's sponsor. Since Donald Trump's inauguration, millions of Americans have staged demonstrations, from the Women's March on Washington in January to protests at town halls across America. What you think about those protests probably depends on where you get your news. Take, for example, the Women's March on Washington in January. The whole world was watching history being made in Washington, in Boston, in Los Angeles, Apparently, they are unable to separate the process of our freedom of elections and the institution of the presidency from their litany of causes. I, I think giving- We're going to let you guess which is Fox News and which is MSNBC. <laughs> now, back in the summer of 1963, TV coverage of the historic March on Washington suffered from a different set of biases. Back in the good old days, there were three major TV networks that dominated broadcast news, and they all claimed to be the same kind of objective. But for the better part of that decade, their coverage was pretty consistent and asked largely, you know, one big question, whether there was violence or maybe the potential for violence. The lead up to the March on Washington, one of the most peaceful mass protests in American history, was no exception. We have the Birmingham campaign in May of 63, which, of course, everybody remembers, the dogs, the fire hoses, um, confrontations in the streets, particularly with school children. This is Aniko Badrakozy. 
a media studies professor at the University of Virginia. She talked to co-host Ed Ayers a few years back. What we don't remember as much is throughout the rest of the summer of 1963 leading up to the march, there were other civil rights kind of flashpoints, particularly in the northern South. Um, So Cambridge, Maryland was a major civil rights battleground that got a lot of coverage and there was a lot of violence, again, not by the African-American civil rights protesters, but the way that campaigns like this tended to get covered was newsmen, and they were all men, tended to often go into the passive voice. So it was never really clear, at least in the way they were narrating news stories, who was perpetuating the violence. Uh So this news frame of, is violence inevitable, gets attached to the coverage leading up to the March on Washington. Now, TV's still a pretty new thing in 1963. And mm-hmm. how did the and how did all three networks, if people can imagine such a situation, how did they plan to cover the March on Washington? Covering something as big as what the March on Washington was presumed to be was a big job. And so the networks actually pooled their resources. Um, Hmm. One network had a pool of cameras in one place, another at the Lincoln Memorial. And so this is something that the networks had some experience doing, particularly with things like presidential inaugurations. But they had never done anything like this for a protest march. And so what happens on the actual day? Well, we know what happens on the actual day. I mean, we've all seen the the images and the pictures, and you know they've come down to us fifty years later as these inspiring images of nonviolent, dignified, purposeful protest. But what's interesting when you look at the coverage, um, and I looked at the coverage of both ABC and CBS. The television cameras seem to be very specifically looking both for crowd shots, but then there's always this cutting in to what I like to call portraits of dignity. And then always this search for a few white marchers to insert among the African-American marchers. You would think from looking at the television news coverage that whites made up about half of the 250,000 people who came to the March on Washington because the news directors seemed to be so insistently looking for white people to center their images on, surrounded by African-American marchers. But we get this image of peaceful, dignified marching to the point that you get news commentators kind of over and over again suggesting this is like a picnic. You know, it's, it's a joyous occasion. You know, nothing like the concerns about violence being inevitable. It's the, of course, it's the exact opposite. That it was never inevitable in the first place. <laughs> you know, that never pay attention to what we were saying before. Yeah, well, of course, if the news personnel had really kind of dug a little bit deeper and looked at the way that Bayard Rustin, who was the main organizer of the march, 
and the SCLC, which was Martin Luther King's organization, and the other civil rights organizations that came together to plan the march, had they actually covered the strategies that the civil rights organizations were using to ensure that things remained nonviolent, that news peg just would never have materialized because everything about the organizing was to ensure that people who came to the march knew what they were coming for. Um, and they had been given their, you know, their marching orders. You know, they were told <laughs> to dress well. They were told, they were quite explicitly told, the eyes of the nation, the eyes of the world are going to be on you. So we can't imagine that the TV reporters just uh, allowed themselves to show hour after hour of uh, this footage without saying something critical about it. What kind of uh, commentary that would sort of add some narrative tension to this did they lay down? Well, when the journalists start to kind of reassert their position as journalists, you know, because they don't want to spend too much time celebrating <laughs> yeah. just how wonderful this is because, you know, that that's not being a journalist. You know, the violence is inevitable news peg, that, of course, has disappeared. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what ends up happening is the new news peg tends to be, well, this won't have any impact on Congress. So here we have all three networks, you know, expending a huge amount of their resources, time and effort to cover this march. And then they kind of end up coming to the conclusion that, yeah, but the march is not what is going to change any minds or influence Congress because that's not where politics happens. Politics happens in the voting booth. Politics happens in discussions with your congressman. Politics is not what happens when people are marching in the street. That was Aniko Badrakosi, media studies professor at the University of Virginia. She was interviewed by our co-host, Ed Ayers. Joanne, Nathan, just how wrong can the media be? I mean, here we are at the cusp of a decade of mass protests that is going to remake what politics is all about. Mm -hmm. And somehow the media... They just don't see what's happening in front of their very own eyes. I mean, and, and they're party to that transformation, right? I mean, the, the creation of a national civil rights agenda, which the March on Washington was totally focused on trying to generate, runs directly through the proliferation of the television, the, the newspapers, the kind of mass media outlets that are covering that march. But I think it's also really important to keep in mind that part of what was supposed to happen with the March on Washington by amplifying the platform of jobs and freedom, by thinking about the centrality of nonviolent direct action to any movements going forward— was to try to standardize 
black politics and standardized kind of civil rights politics. And, now, shine, course, a, and shine a light on it, right? It was. It was. And it didn't come without certain costs. So when they decided, for instance, not to allow women to speak at all on the day of the march, that was a bad look in terms of a national movement. And, you know, Malcolm X was as critical as, you know, other observers about the fact that there wasn't more militancy, right? And so what the what the press saw as a benefit, he actually saw as the limitations of the march. And he, and he called it a picnic in a pejorative sense. But th- that dampening, I think, you know, was another feature of their efforts to nationalize their claims. As shown on the National Network News. Right. So you're, you're talking, Nathan, about um, the nationalization of it helping standardize the local. And I would add also empowering it. Mm. I, I mean, again, I, I keep talking about the American Revolution because... Boy, that was a big protest. That's but what you're here again, for. No, it's okay. <laughs> I'm an 18th century historian. But that's a, also a moment in which you have a sense of a general problem, but you have a lot of local organization about this general problem. And, and what makes it or what helps really create it a, a revolutionary moment is the newspaper spreading um, right, that right. and nationalizing it in a, in a similar way to what you're talking about here, Nathan creating a national audience and suggesting that there is a national something going on so that while the local is still there and still in operation, there's a power that wasn't there without that kind of a frame. It's easy to forget how colonies were like little nation states and that there wasn't any kind of national anything. And so the the impact of these newspapers, kind of like we're talking about here with the television, was pretty impressive. And is it also fair to say that in that case, it brought a lot more participants into politics than had existed before? Yes. And partly, though, by by empowering and and sort of putting a lot of steam into what was happening locally. But yes, I do think that's true. Right. You know, what's so remarkable about this is, you know, it's almost like we expect movements now to have a certain kind of standardized look. Right. Right. I mean, certainly nonviolent direct action is a big part of that. Marches in open public places. But I was even thinking about, you know, the 2011 march in Occupy Wall Street, where there was a real critique that was leveled largely by the media that the activists in Zuccotti Park in New York and elsewhere didn't really have a demand. Right. There wasn't a single platform Mm -hmm. piece that they could point to to say, this is what we want the, the government to do in response to massive wealth inequality, for instance. Right. So they had great rhetorical terms. Obviously, the notions of the 99 percent versus the 1 percent, that totally stuck. But what I mean, I don't know if anybody could quickly rattle off what the platform was or what the ask was of that protest. Right. In, in a way, that critique feels like it stuck, stuck a little bit. And they didn't have something else, Nathan. They didn't have the kind of leaders that the mm. press needs to go to to get good quotations, right. uh, to center right. stories around that one or two charismatic individuals. Uh, think Martin Luther King, for instance. Framing. We're talking about framing again. A- absolutely. But this go- goes back to that point, right, about you know the media and the media's approach to these protests. And there, there is still, even with the march in Washington in 63, a kind of, you know, um, let's say, I mean, let's call it conservative leadership model, yes. right? That That is absolutely one of the reasons why the movement becomes so fragile by the late 1960s with assassinations, with co-optations. You can more easily demobilize a lot of these movements if you can identify kind of top-heavy parts of the movement structure and basically decapitate them, right? I mean, 
all of this, um, I think, really did provide a certain kind of lesson for movements going forward in the 2000s and elsewhere, but not without certain costs, like a lack of messaging or certain kinds of vagueness, at least from the part of some of the folks who are less sympathetic politically. That's going to do it for us today, but you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your burning history questions. You'll find us at BackstoryRadio.org or send an email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. And feel free to review the new show in the iTunes store. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. Backstory is produced at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. And by History Channel. History made every day. This episode of Backstory was produced by Andrew Parsons, Bridget McCarthy, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddick, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Joey Thompson is our researcher. Additional help came from Sequoia Carrillo, Emma Gregg, Aiden Lee, Courtney Spagna, Robin Blue, and Elizabeth Spache. Our theme song was written by Nick Thorburn. Other music in this episode came from Ketza and Pottington Bear. Brian Ballow is professor of history at the University of Virginia and the Dorothy Compton professor at the Miller Center of Public Affairs. Ed Ayers is professor of the humanities and president emeritus at the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is professor of history and American studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Windham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities.